0: hey there listeners and welcome to another wonderful episode on the leadership is changing podcast and I've got a wonderful guest with me today his name is John Derbyshire and John is uh, he launched a, an organization called smart sweep and really what it does is it's a work management platform that manages processes from any industry on one platform now what he does is he actually takes different parts of a business or different elements and brings it together to make sure that the, the work gets done. And um, in 2000, he actually founded a company called Archer Technologies, which he later on sold on to EMC, which was fantastic to see him do that in 2010. But you know, throughout his whole career, he's really dedicated to automating every day, doing essential business tasks and to, to be more smarter about things and more efficient. And prior to that, he held leadership roles in EY and Price Waterhouse. Now, the title of this episode is Hire Great People and Great Things Will Happen. As I interviewed John, there was a few things that sort of was quite interesting that came up. One thing is that we had a common background or a common area that we knew of each other. So check that out. Second thing is he talked about the difference of leadership with a startup versus a Fortune 1000 company. And then, of course, the topic of the hire great people and great things will happen. He blamed about that. And then he talked about technology and collaboration and how that's going to be very important for organizations and leaders going forward. All right, listeners, sit back and enjoy the episode. Welcome to Leadership is Changing. Hey there, listeners. Welcome to another wonderful session with the Leadership is Changing podcast. Great to have you here with us. And I've got a wonderful guest with me today. His name is John Dubishire. And John, a massive welcome to you. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be uh, with you here today. Excellent. Hey, John, whereabouts are you in the world today? I am in sunny Southern California, just right down the street from Newport Beach, California. Oh, very nice. So you're, you're just coming out of summer now, obviously going into autumn. Is that right? It is, but there's not
1: much autumn here. It's it's pretty much year round. I live on the beach. It's between seventy two and seventy eight almost every day year round. So,
0: oh, wonderful! Yeah, oh, that's excellent. Very, very good. Hey, um, so I was just giving a little brief introduction. I've already done that uh, with with the uh, the listeners. So you have an organization called Smart Suite, is that correct? It is, yes. Smart Suite is a work management platform that allows organizations to manage any
1: process or project on a single platform. So you may think of a lot of organizations or a lot of employees in organizations use a combination of tools, on average, six to eight different tools to kind of do their job each day. So we've tried to combine all of those different tool sets that you typically use from forms and collaboration tools and project management and process management and integration, dashboarding, business analytics, all into a single platform Smart SmartSuite.
0: Oh, that's great. You know what? I, I of course, coach a lot of uh, executives and that around the world. And I say to them, any high-performing executive, team, sporting team, whatever it is, organization always have the right tools, systems, and processes in place, and that's what makes them high-performing. And I think, listeners, if you are uh, wanting to know how you can go to other levels in that, think very seriously about the tools, the processes, and the systems that you have around you, uh, which is which is really important. Now, John, I noticed that in your bio, your background as well. You you had an organization called Archer Technologies, and that was purchased by EMC Corporation in twenty ten. And also you held leadership positions with both EY and Price Waterhouse. Uh, Archer Technologies, what did they do and how how was that? Was it a lot of fun for you to be able to sell it and that? How how was that? Yeah, absolutely. I think Archer Technologies
1: really started from an idea I had while I was at Ernst & Young. So I ran their global cybersecurity program, actually started and ran that program. We had about 1,500 consultants around the world providing services to help secure organizations, At that time, online banking was just taking off, so there was a lot of services around, how do I secure systems around online banking for public-facing websites for the first time? And as I traveled the world and met with customers, uh, I listened to their problems, and we would solve that by providing a service. And then six months later, we'd come back and provide the same service again with the new set of recommendations, but there was no process on how to manage security in an organization. So I left Ernst & Young, started a company called Archer Technologies. I spent like the first four months just trying to figure out how to solve the problem with technology from a software perspective. I looked at security as a process, just like accounts payable, accounts receivable, HR, any process that's in a company. And the light bulb finally hit me in month four, I figured it out in my head, uh, approached our first client, which was EDS in Plano, Texas, before we ever wrote a line of code. And EDS signed a three-year agreement in two weeks and said, you have to be successful. And they actually paid us more than what we proposed for the pricing over the, the SaaS model over three years because they felt it was such a need. And Archer went on to become the leading company in what's known now as governance, risk, and compliance. 75 of the Fortune 100 were customers when we sold the company, 29 of the top 30 financial services companies. Like it just really took off. We were the kind of the first player in that space. They're still operating out of the same location in Overland Park, Kansas, where we founded the company. Uh, It's been sold, EMC was sold to Dell Computers and then Dell rolled this back out to a private equity group about a year ago. And I hear they're trying to go public and they have around 700, 750 million a year in reoccurring revenue. So pretty sizable company. It was was great to start it with a couple of people. My wife and my mom were co-founders of that. Uh, My wife ran sales and marketing and my mother uh, ran hall operations uh, for us.
0: Wow, wow, wow. The, this is amazing because <laughs> uh, I worked for EDS. Oh, really? Um, yeah, and so when would you have paired up with EDS? Would that have been the early 2000s or mid-2000s? Yeah, it was
1: 2001. Uh, they were our first customer. They were responsible for really the impact that the company had across all these other Fortune 100 companies. Started with EDS and just the need that they had to secure systems in relation to the General Motors outsourcing deal that had happened at that time.
0: Yeah, well, I um, I worked for an organization here in New Zealand called Data Bank Systems, which was really the clearinghouse for all banks here, because they're all locally owned in New Zealand. And then in 1993, I think, they were bought out by EDS, and then EDS, about nine months later to a year later, purchased government computing services. So then all of government was almost outsourced to, to EDS as well. Loved that time with them and then 96 left, went to Europe to live for five years, came back, went back to EDS again uh, and to some senior roles in that. But um, yeah, because New Zealand was looking at launching its own another bank by the government and so I was brought in to see if we can actually win that deal, uh, which was fantastic. So yeah, really, really quite interesting. Um And so in 2001 was probably my first, oh, would it be? No, no, it wouldn't have been. I would have been in, uh, probably in <laughs> around 95, 96 no, actually, I am right. In 2001, I think, was my first time I went to Plano, Texas, and it snowed, <laughs> which was ridiculous. was ridiculous. It, yeah, No, no. and um, so and they were like, what do we do? Which is quite interesting to see. Yeah. Hey, so, okay, you, you own those organizations, but how did you get into leadership?
1: Yeah, you know, my first, I, I guess, you know, I, I started my career at a small company in Newport Beach, California, Uh, And I thought I wanted to get into real estate development. So I went to work for an accounting tax and consulting company that did work for the large real estate developer locally that had about a 100 plus high rise buildings uh, at that time. And I had the chance to work in a company of about a 100 people. And I really I learned a lot of great ways to lead people from the leader of that company. And that kind of propelled me to the next phase of my career when I went to work for Price Waterhouse. That was my first true leadership position. I only had maybe ten people, fifteen people there. That lasted a couple of years and we were really, really successful. And Ernst & Young hired me away to run their global practice. So I went from running a small team to running a team of about fifteen hundred people just in the matter of two or three years. So that's at Ernst & Young was where I really grew up from a, a leadership perspective.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm, mm, cool. Very good. And, you know, running an organization as large as that, that you did, I presume you it all was nice and smooth. There was no problems at all. Or in those days, I mean, those days, what was sort of the main focus for for you as a leader? Yeah. So at, at that time, it was all about understanding
1: the services that we wanted to offer as an organization. And then productizing those services was a big word at, at Ernst Young meeting. We wanted to document those services in a way that they could be delivered by different groups of people, anywhere in the world, and be delivered consistently each time. Right. So we would right. not only document the the proposals and the statements of work and you know, the services that we offered in the pricing, but then uh, the work aids that helps our our people actually do the work and the checklist and different things that we use to say, here's how we provide this service, and as you're doing that service, here's how you check off that you've done all of these things, and then all the deliverables associated with that, and then even the presentations that were back to management when it was over. So our, our goal was to bring all of that together. And then I would travel the world and put leadership teams in place that would deliver those services. And I think we had some 30 different geographies around the world. So I spent a lot of time traveling. I think we had 19 just in the U.S. Uh, that we were responsible for. And then I would help those leaders in those geographies hire the people that they needed to provide those types of services in their geography. And then one of the key things that we tried to do is we would bring people into these new geographies, uh, from another geography. Let maybe the New York guys would come to Kansas city and work on projects and show the Kansas city crew how they actually deliver those. So they would be trained by kind of the leading experts in the company. And we created a national practice of kind of the best of the best resources that we had that would continually travel around and help, uh, really help educate the young people that we were hiring that were just coming on board. And some of those people turned out to be the who's who's list today in the cybersecurity space from founding of CrowdStrike and George Kurtz. And I could go on and on, but there was a lot of great leaders that, that were very young at the time that we worked together that went on to, to found and build some of the best companies on the security.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know about you, John, but I think that's that's our role as leaders is to to take people, give them opportunities to grow, and then to see them go off and fly and do really well in other organizations. And um, it must must feel really, I mean, how do you feel about that kind of stuff, about them going off to do other things? Yeah, you know, at Ernst & Young, it just kind of happens. And I really didn't think about
1: it. And after the fact, looking back, it's really cool just to be a part of that, to work with those people, to have some influence over their management style when they were pretty young. When I was at Archer Technologies, it was a little more formal. Uh, you know, we had, we again, hired a lot of really young people and we had, programs and processes in place to really groom and motivate them to help them be as productive as they could. And it's, it's been fun to see groups of people leave that company and go start their own companies in that space and in the adjoining spaces as well. And I've also been very successful. So I, I think as a, as a leader, one of the most rewarding things personally that I've seen is just some of the people that I hired early
0: on that have went on to do some really amazing things. Mm, tremendous. They are, I think it's just a really, really good thing to see and witness happening. But also I think it's, you know, it comes back to you as well about what you've done as well to help them and, you know, and sort of launch them, which which is fantastic. Now, John, um, this this question is going to be an interesting one uh, in the sense that who's your favorite leader and why? Now, this person could be alive or from history. So, John, who's your favorite leader and why? Yeah, it's probably not somebody that you would think. It was the leader
1: that was in my first job in in my career. So it was a small hundred person, this accounting consulting tax firm, his name was Steve Haspel. It was, I I say this because he was a very tough, but fair leader and very inspiring. And what I I learned a lot from him and just how to do my job, but I learned a lot about how he interacted and managed people in the company. And the key thing was the culture that he created. It was a work hard, but play hard culture. And that's as much as we worked hard each day, and there was a lot of hours that he put in at this company. They had events that happened each week and each month and each quarter that would get the employees outside of the business. And he would, he didn't worry about the cost of those events. He made sure that you enjoyed those events. I still remember some of the things that we did and the trips that we would take as a company. And he would bring, you know, Greyhound buses and they pull up in front and everybody would get in and we would drive an hour down the Del Mar racetrack and spend a day, you know, just having fun and doing things. And you're like, it just turned into every year you look forward to these specific events that happen on these specific months as a team. And it was very motivating and you became very close with the people that you worked with. And that stuck with me through my whole career. And I emulated that in a number of different places that I went where I tried to we always worked hard, but we tried to create a culture of we're going to go do fun things together and not just with employees. We're going to invite spouses and kids. We're going to, everybody's included. This isn't just a work thing that's going to happen.
0: Yeah. It's like, it's like a big family, right? And, uh, and you all enjoy that, uh, the time together. Yeah. And, and John, I was just wondering, you know, I mean, it's, it's really important that we do do that because recognition, taking time out to celebrate, taking time out to have some fun together as well is very important do you think that leaders today are doing that enough uh probably not you know it's it's not an easy
1: thing to do not every company has the budget to do those types of things you know i've I've worked for a number of companies along the way that would have events like that but not invite the spouses which always caused conflicts right at home and the spouses didn't have the chance to really understand your coworkers and buy into what we were doing and understand the long, maybe the longer hours uh, that were there. So, um, yeah, I, I, think that's, that's something that, that have stuck with me as well, that I've always tried to do is make sure that I invite, you know, it's a family type of event that we want to invite people to not just the, the employees.
0: Recently, I was at an event, part of an organization and a part of, and, um, the The two senior leaders came up to to my wife and said to her, "Hey, uh, we just want to thank you for allowing you know to to have time with Dennis and for him to be involved with us and things like that because we really appreciate it, because it's taking them away from family time and think that that was really big of them, but it was really important because for her, you know she got that recognition as well. And and I think that sometimes we forget about those partners, those spouses, and the families as well. but the you know it is a big family, and, I'm I'm in a sort of an attitude of that, you know, we are leaders of an organization, things like that. But actually at the end of the day, we are there to build communities and, right. um, you know, and that's, that's, that's the thing for us to look at. And I think it's really important. And I think I got that learning a lot from the EDS days because that's how they also worked in those days too. And I think it's very important. And now, so if you were to have another chat with Steve on a park bench and for you two to have a coffee together. If there was one burning question you want to ask Steve about him and his leadership in the past and things like that, what would that one question be? Yeah, I,
1: I, you know, Steve has since passed away at a young age, so it's unfortunate that I I can't do that. But I I would want to know a little bit more about who he inspired, you know, who inspired him that kind of led to the leadership style that he had. Because it was just very soft and casual, but he could also, you you didn't want to disappoint him. like and. Uh, but he was very motivating, and he tended to, to just spend time with the people in the organization to get to know them. And it, it felt different. And it, it did feel like a family. You know, it, it wasn't mm. a family, but he was creating this family type of atmosphere. And the people from that organization are still connected today. It's 30 years later, still friends, right? It's just this big network. And I tried to take a lot of that to Archer Technologies and create that same kind of culture that's there. And I, I have to say, after. 22, 23 years since we started Archer Technologies, there's still original employees that are there that we hired when they were young. There's the connection with this 150 plus people in that small community that their families, their kids, they just grew up together, just created a really unique experience. So it was it was work, but it was much more than work. It was the community that you were just talking about became very, very important to the people, it became part of their life. It was just a fabric of, of their day-to-day life.
0: Yeah, I love it, what you just said there about the fabric of their life, right? And that's how it's woven through as well. And I think it's part of his legacy, right? I mean, it's uh, it, I, the college, well, I'll say college in where you live, I think you call it high school. But where I went, we had a Latin sort of term for the for this college, and that was Lemonet Upset et Imperiti, which means take on the light and pass it on. So Steve took the light, but he passed it on to you for sure. and to others. And then now you're passing it on to others as well. And I think that's. That's, that's just, that's leadership. That's what we're there to do. For sure. For sure. Mm. Now, John, the show was called Leadership is Changing. When I say that title of the show or that statement, what does that mean for you? Yeah, for me
1: personally, I, I think it, you know, leadership four and five years ago was managing a group of people in a central location in most cases. And, you know, when we started SmartSuite, we had an idea to, to hire the best people anywhere in the world. It begin to break down this, I hire people within 30, you know, miles of a particular geography and COVID hit maybe six months Mm -hmm. after that. So it became very common with where we were headed. But the challenge for, for anybody in leadership at that point is, you know, you, you can't talk face to face with people each day. So you have to find other ways to connect video for sure. Like I, I spend the first two and a half hours of my day on video calls with our people in nine different countries that we have, you know. Not just to answer questions, but to build those relationships and, you know, and to feel like at some, you know, work together, even though we're not together from a geography perspective. So the challenges that I faced five years ago in managing a group of people in a central office and how I did that is very different than how I try to manage the team. You know, I, I'm, I'm very big on all hands meetings and offsite meetings and, um, you know, those are all on video now. So you, you have to be better prepared for thing there and you have to do things that help keep the people engaged. You know, it's, it's one thing to be in person, but it's another thing to listen for a few hours to just a video call.
0: Mm. And I love what you just said there about how you spend that time to build the relationships with people, because I think that's, that's, that's the biggest thing we can do is to build the relationship because uh, once they understand that we care about them, then they'll go the extra mile and do things as well. But I mean, at the end of the day, the human beings, right? The the people. And so yeah, I'm intrigued how you said the first two and a half hours of the day you spend online. Uh-huh. Uh, do you get to touch many geographies around the world?
1: I do. I touch every geography every morning that's there. I, I'm big on, on agile development, which leads to not just from a, a software development perspective, but agile as a process in any company, which leads to every morning, each team spends 10 to 15 minutes doing a stand up where each person goes around and says, this is what I did yesterday or completed yesterday. This is what I'm working on today. Do I have any blockers that I need help with? And off to the next person, right? And that helps keep everybody kind of engaged on what everybody else is working with. And we do that in two ways. We use Slack with a Slack channel where every person makes that post every day. So everybody can go back through and see it. And then in our standups, we very quickly run through those. And then we move into any topics that we have that we need to discuss from a software development or, you know, sales marketing perspective that we might have. So I have four of those each morning that kind of kick things off. So I feel like I'm connected with all of the core leadership uh, every day. So five days a week that's there. And then we do all hands meetings where we make sure that we touch everybody together. And we try to do that about once a month where again, we'll have an hour online where just everybody's there. I go through the goals, objectives of the company. I help answer questions. I provide an update on some of the great progress or things that we've done uh, that's there and then have a chance for people to ask questions as
0: well. It's kind of the wine. Mm, very cool. Very cool. And Slack uh, listeners, if you don't know what that is, please do check it out. Wonderful tool. I think it's brilliant. That's who what I use to actually communicate with my production team and also my design team. Uh, Slack. Wonderful tool. Um, I think it's, pr- I love it. And um All good. So, John, the next question here is about what, you know, you and I are living in a very, very fast, ever-changing world, you know, whether it be social, data, technology, business, everything seems to be getting faster and faster and and, and there's a lot of change. What makes a leader successful in this fast-paced, ever-changing world? Yeah, I I saw this question in advance, and the first thing I thought is, you know, there's different types
1: of leaders and different types of companies. You know, if you're talking about a startup company, you know, the leadership skills that you need there are are very different than if you're, you know, a Fortune 1000 more established company that's there. If if we're talking about startup companies, kind of like 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 Smart Suite, you know, the the vision, the culture, productivity, those are things that are very important to the success of that company, and what I, what I like to say is hire great people and great things will happen. And you spend more time, I think as a startup focused on the hiring process or you should anyway, because it's, you can't afford to make the wrong decisions or the almost right decision when it comes to hiring people. Cause when you only have a team of 10 or 15, one person that doesn't fit the mold can, can have the whole team suffer at that time. So you have to spend yeah. a lot more time to make sure And it's not always the skill sets. Sometimes it's just the the way that people interact uh, with each other is as important as the skill that they bring to the team that's there.
0: Yeah, I think it's like a car, right? I mean, if there's one part of the car that's not working very well, then the car still works, but then it's just sluggish and it just doesn't perform better, um, which is, yeah. I love the terminology you used, hire great people and great things will happen. Yeah. I use hmm. that all the time. I've had the chance, we didn't talk about it, but I, a, after I sold
1: Archer Technologies, I had the chance to really retire and started a family foundation and, and did a lot of investing and invested in about 400 startup companies. So I had the chance to work with a lot of founders that were just, you know, beginning their career with a new, you know, product or service idea uh, that they had. That's there. So we spend a lot of time talking about that, like the hiring, they would ask me, where do I start? And I'm like, Who's the co-founder? Do you have two co-founders? I find that companies that have three co-founders are more successful than ones that have one co-founder. And the reason for that is you've got to spread that work out, you know, over time with people that you trust. And then the next most Mm -hmm. important thing is what's the first two to three hires that you're gonna make? And how do they, how do they interact with those, you know, one, two or three, you know, founders of the company that you have and that, that initial team is as important as the idea that most companies have is what I found. I I got some great advice when I started investing from a partner at Bain Capital that had done hundreds of investments. And I would go to him and I would be all excited about this new idea that I had found that somebody has. And he would always come back to me and says, John, invest in the people, not the idea, invest in the people. And Mm -hmm. we would spend lots of time talking about that. And what he really meant was you know, there's a lot of great ideas, but it's the people that make the ideas work. And if you have great people and a great idea, I mean, that's when you find a unicorn. But most of the time you find great people and they they find out how to make that idea work regardless of what the idea is. And I, I've learned that. I've invested in companies that I thought the idea was just phenomenal and was always hoping that the entrepreneurs would just make it work and it didn't. And I've invested in companies where... I didn't think the idea was so great and they went on to just be crazy successful because they just kept pivoting and found the right way, you know, the right path along the way to, to make it right.
0: Mm. There you go. Listeners, I find great people and great things will happen. But you know what? The great people by the sounds of what John's just saying is they're the ones that will actually bring the ideas to life. They're the ones that would make it happen, which is good. Now, John, you talked about startups, but you also mentioned Fortune 1000 companies as well because leadership is maybe different in both areas. So Fortune 1000, what, what's your thoughts around what a leader in that kind of organization might need to do in this fast-paced, ever-changing world? Yeah, you know, it's, it,
1: it, when you get to that level, and I've had the chance to interact with quite a number of leaders, especially in the financial services side uh, of, of companies. And um, it's not, it's not as much about the vision of what they have. It's mm-hmm. about the execution of the vision that's been in place for some period of time already and how to sell that execution to the people on the teams. In case, in, in some cases, 30, 40, 50,000 people that need to actually do the work to make that company successful. So I have to spend more time understanding how do I motivate and incent and my employees around the execution, the goals and objectives that I have for this particular quarter. And what I found is that the people that not only document that and share that with their employees, so people understand what that is and they know how the work that they're doing relates to that, I feel those people are more successful than the ones that maybe don't share the goals and objectives all the way down. Uh, the, it may be that I'm just biased towards, like, I, I wanna know the why, before I sign up for something. And I feel that, you know, that people want to do that. And in the whole hands meetings that I've had for 20 years, I can tell you that that's where most employees, when they would ask questions, it wasn't about changing the vision or the objectives for the quarter. It was about, why did you make that decision? Why is that the goal that we have, right? They they just want to hear you explain that to them in a way that they can understand. Even if they don't agree, they want to know the why. Like, well, Hmm how did you get to that place?
0: Yeah, yeah. And I also think that's, you know, for them to understand is one thing, but I think it's also them asking, hey, are we on the right track? Am I okay here? Is it still okay? That type of thing as well. And I don't know about you, John, but I noticed that some organizations, you you tell me what your thoughts and experience has been, you know, with a startup, then you're going into a larger organization. There's that tipping point whereby it becomes a little bit too bureaucratic or too much to be done. And Too big and sluggish because you know some of these organisations are like big aircraft carriers. It takes a lot to turn them around. And I know in HP days we were in trouble share price wise and performance and all that to try and turn that ship around. It took Meg Wickman and the team of you know three hundred and (laughs) sixty five thousand employees a lot to turn that around. Right? It took a while. Uh, Is there a tipping point where some organisations go become then too big and too maybe not too big but too bureaucratic? Too too much in there into things like processes and systems and things like that, probably stopping them rather than enabling them to go off and do things. Yeah. I, I you know, When we sold Archer
1: Technologies, we had about 200 employees and the company that acquired us, EMC, had I think 43,000 employees, right? Very big difference. And they were known for a couple of things. The first is they were a sales engine and they were all about sales. So I would say that I don't know the exact numbers, but I'd say 90% of the people in that company had some role around sales and marketing, right? It was just, that was the engine that they had built. And they weren't known as an innovator as much as they were known as a company that would go and purchase innovation. They did a lot of acquisitions. So they spent a lot of time on understanding how to make their acquisitions successful. And they had complete division that focused just on that. When they would purchase a company, that team would come in and apply all of their processes on top of that, mainly software products to really kind of just blow it out from a sales perspective. And I I learned a lot there that it was very, the bureaucracy was, was very strong. Like they, when they would set goals or objectives, it was once a quarter and those didn't change during that quarter, right? They didn't pivot. They didn't listen to customer feedback and make a change. Whereas at, at Archer Technologies, we every week to two weeks, we were, looking and listening and pivoting if we saw new features or things that customers needed and i think the bigger the organization obviously the harder it is to change in the middle of that three-month cycle especially if you're a public Mm -hmm. company and you've given guidance in an area that's that tended at emc to drive the decisions were was based on the guidance and the stock press that we did
0: Yeah, those analysts, they're sitting there waiting, oh, what are they going to do? Exactly. Yeah, they're going to change things. Yeah, so yeah, you there was a totally different ball game, Um, than it would be for a startup for sure. Yeah, excellent. Hey, you and I have been talking about leaders a lot so far. If we change our lens right now and start to think about now employees, in other words, you and I have been employees in the past and we, we may have employees today and things like that. So how has employees' expectations of leaders changed?
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm seeing this at SmartSuite, you know, I, we tend to hire quite a number of millennials and general Zers, kind of across our workforce, you know, from that early twenties to maybe mid thirties, kind of that range uh, that you see there. And th- there's a couple of things. First off, they're very technology focused and they're very collaborative, collaboration focused, meaning. Th- th- they may be working on their computer and at the same time they're on their computer, they're using their mobile phone to do something else at the same time, yep. right? They're used to doing multiple things. They, they want to know what's happening, not just in their group, but in other groups. So they, they want to, in they want to be able to look in and see what are the objectives for the sales team, for the marketing team, what's going on in product development, like it, almost to the point that they're a little nosy, but they don't consider it that way. It's part of. They just need to understand the why, like what's happening at the company and why are we doing these things? And I tend to spend a lot more of my time with that, with that particular group of people answering questions on the why that we were just kind of talking about before. Like they, they have a lot of opportunities to work for different companies. They're not as, not as focused maybe as our parents, where you would get a job and stay there for a long period of time. Um, It doesn't bother them to work somewhere a year or two and switch to the next job. And the reason that they switch is because they've lost their motivation. They're not learning like the minute that those two things happen, they're looking for the next opportunity. There's not, you know, this company loyalty. It's they're looking back to you to say, I'll be loyal to you as long as you're providing these types of things back to me. So we spend a lot more time on collaboration and communication with that group than I have with in the past with other groups.
0: Yeah, very good. Very good. Now, John, if I can get you to get your crystal ball out here now, we're going to talk about, we'll think about the future. Where where do you see leadership being in five years?
1: Yeah, I, I I think we're seeing a couple of things happen in the market right now because of COVID in that I don't think remote work is going to go away. I think it's going to become harder and harder for employees to accept jobs where they have to go in the office, maybe not full-time, but maybe part-time in the office, part-time at home. Um, yeah. And we're finding with, with, uh, again, especially with our Gen Zers, we have people that have moved a couple of times with us to different locations. We have some people that go say in Airbnbs for two or three months at a time in different countries. They do their work during the day, but at night they want to explore and just enjoy this, this, especially across Europe, you know, the rich culture that's there. And um, at first I was against that. I, I didn't feel like that was in the best interest of the company. But what I found is that some of those people are the most productive people that we have. They get their work done. They're very motivated. They're just excited because they're, there's this constant sense of, of venture that's kind of happening with them. Um, I don't love that for the higher management level people that um, sometimes they need to be more, a little more connected than that with the people that they're working with. But kind of the doers, the people that are getting their work done, um, I think you're going to see that. Uh, just become a fabric of, of business in itself. You're going to see a lot more remote employees.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, very good. Well, John, been a pleasure uh, talking with you today. Um, thanks for joining us. And um, if anyone wants to get hold of you, where, where should they go?
1: Yeah, you can go to SmartSuite.com to learn a little bit more about SmartSuite. Or you can catch me on LinkedIn, of just john.darbyshire. It's J-O-N
0: for John. And uh, yeah, connect with me. I'd I'd be happy to connect back. Awesome. Well done, John. Hey, listeners, that's another uh, episode with the Leadership is Changing podcast. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, bye for now.